Hey, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I'm Jim Grant, and with me today, as usual, um, and then some, we have uh, the great Evan Lorenz, Deputy Editor of Grant's. We have Phil Grant, who produces the essential daily reading, or almost daily reading, called Almost Daily Grant's, Eric Whitehead, as usual, at the controls, and today's special guest, William Fleckenstein. Bill Fleckenstein, who was, uh, I had to say, it, we, Bill and I have been um, fellow sojourners in the uh, financial market for about 40 years. Bill runs Fleckenstein Capital. He produces the uh, Daily Wrap, which is something you ought to read as well. As I should have mentioned, this first, certainly second, is one of the great all-around athletes in the business of buying low and selling high, or in his case, selling high and buying low. He's like a sub-three-hour marathon runner, ace eye-hand coordination guy in a tennis racket, and a fearless skier, I'm told. I myself wouldn't dare put them on. Skis, that is. So, Bill, welcome. Thank you, Jim, for that glorious introduction. Well, it's not going to get any better. That's it. That's the, that's <laughs> the peak of the show. And I ought to say, before we progress further, and I will say, this episode of Grants on the Air is brought to you by uh, Money for the Rest of Us, a must-listen-to podcast, and eFinancial Careers, which is the world's leading financial service career website. So without further ado, Bill Fleckenstein, what we have today, we have a list of 10 observations compiled by the staff of Grants that you rarely see at market bottom, all right? And what we propose to do with you today is to just enumerate these things and get your reaction to them, all right? Uh, hopefully, I'll be up to the task. Okay. So the first is the citing that certain AAA rated bond issue to the Paris-based resource and waste management and utility outfit called Veolia. Uh, the other day issued half a billion of euro-denominated three-year notes priced to yield less than nothing. This is a triple B rated corporate credit that is borrowing at a yield to maturity of 0.026. And I asked Mathematics Major, did I say negative? I meant to. It is borrowing at less than nothing. That Bill Fleckenstein, is this a sign of a market bottom? <laughs> Most assuredly not. You know, as long as the mania, I think it's okay if we call this a mania, as long as it remains in force, I feel like there will be new records of, to be pejorative, absurdity pretty much on a daily, weekly basis. And so we could cite lots of things which seem bizarre, and then pretty soon you'll find something a little more bizarre, just like we found out a few days ago that um, a painting's worth $450 million, even if it might be somewhat flawed. So I think a lot of these wild data points are a function of the same thing, which most of your listeners and readers would be familiar with, and that is consequences of nine years of QE. Yeah, when we first started talking bond yields, the long-dated treasury yields were, of course, in the double digits. I said earlier, I think we, we, we knew each other for a long time, but I think we first started talking regularly in like 1987, maybe. It and, was 86, um, actually, because I remember the cartoon where the guy was jumping up on top of his desk screaming, bond fever. And I <laughs> I remember right. how hilarious I thought it was, and I called you to talk about it. I could swear it was in '86, but someone would have to that, check that, that the was, cartoon archive. Yeah, that was a year of uh, bond fever. But you know, in 1987, on the eve of the famous October 19th stock market break, long treasuries yielded 10%, and they got back to 14% for uh, five minutes or so in I think, May of 1984. So, you know, I guess we came of financial awareness. Certainly, our formative financial experiences were in that moment in which bonds were reviled unconditionally as an asset class, where Leon Cooperman called them certificates of confiscation. And now they are more than embraced as an asset class, as if they were inherently safe, where when we started out in the markets, they were inherently unsafe. And maybe both ideas are all wrong, right? I mean, yeah. Well, I, obviously, the, the the absolute level of yield matters, but we were raised in a world, or and the financial history would suggest, shouldn't be telling you this, of course, because you know more about it than I do, but bonds ought to offer some measure, the interest rate ought to offer some measure of protection, A, against potential credit 
credit risk and B, against inflation. And whereas the bonds back then where people were afraid of them certainly had both of those, today I think we could argue that they certainly don't offer much protection against inflation. And whether or not the credit risk is any good, I guess with the sovereign, you don't have to worry about it because they do have the printing press. And that feeds back to the first point I just made. The islands have a printing press. It issued a, was it a five-year note, Evan? Uh, they filled a five-year note, maybe at zero percent coupon and uh, priced a little bit over par. They too yielded less than nothing. Portugal had no printing press. I think those yields are perilously close to anyway. Knocking well, on the door. I, 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 I guess I would offer up that, you know, they're probably not huge market caps. And in a world where there is so much QE and so much crazy paper, they might seem like, you know, speculative, quote unquote, bargains because they yield a, a hair more than they're supposed to, according to the computer model, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do. So this segment of the Grants Podcast has come to you courtesy of Money for the Rest of Us. You are looking for an investment podcast in addition to Grants. May I suggest Money for the Rest of Us? It's a show about money, of course, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. You know, if you read some of the reviews of this podcast review thing, gives uh, Money for the Rest of Us, they're just terrific. Here's one. Uh, wonderful financial insights in a relaxed style. And here's another one. Excellent resource for the thoughtful investor. So recent Money for the Rest of Us episodes have included, uh, is there an indexing bubble? Yeah. Is uh, Bitcoin better at money than the dollar? And what happens if the U.S. defaults on its debt? Mm -hmm. Well, you can subscribe to Money for the Rest of Us on your favorite podcast app, or to learn more, go to moneyfortherestofus.com. That's moneyfortherestofus.com. One thing I should have mentioned in your intro, Bill, is that you have been a a career-long participant in and student of the metals market, and you made not only a very, very successful investment, but also as a director, a very, very considered act of, years of considered acts of corporate governance on the board of Pan American Silver. So with all that by way of preface, I would like to ask you, as if I didn't know, your opinion on the following. All right, this is a Bloomberg story. A Bitcoin bubble, question mark. Here's the bet that it'll survive the apocalypse because doomsday preppers are turning to the digital currency. So says this headline. So people are buying Bitcoin against the contingency of a, what? Of the collapse of the grid in a cyber warfare attack. Uh, could you comment, Bill Fleckenstein? Certainly. Well, listen, when you can overcome the intellectual hurdle of the fact that the amount of Bitcoins is supposed to be limited, but the number of potential forks is unlimited, and the fact that the amount of potential alternative cryptocurrencies is infinite, and oh, by the way, the blockchain is what most people yap about, but yet you don't own it. I submit if you can overlook all of those things as the price rises from 28 cents or wherever it started to $8,000, why can't you overlook the fact that you need electricity and in an apocalypse you wouldn't have any? That's just a simple inconvenience, I would say. I mean, it's become, without being glib like it was, it's become so absurd that, you know, no level of absurdity seems to matter. I mean, you would think that there'd be an editor at Bloomberg who'd say, huh, wait a minute, (laughs) how can a digital currency do you any good in any sort of chaos? But again, we're in an environment where things are so crazy that it doesn't even rise to the level of news because, you know, there's all this competition of other seemingly unbelievable events. Right. For example, here's something else that Evan and Phil and Fabiano collected from the Wall Street Journal. Quote, shares in technology companies are outpacing other sectors this year by the widest margin since the height of the dot-com era, with a handful of key players dictating how markets are performing around the world. Just 
eight companies, and you can name them, including you know, Facebook and Apple and, of course, Alibaba and Tencent, eight companies have increased by $1.4 trillion in market cap in 2017, a sum roughly equivalent to the combined annual GDP out of Spain and Portugal, as if that fact were relevant. Anyway, Bill, you were around doing business, and I recollect just a little bit of suffering in the 20 years encompassing the years 1998-1999. Please compare and contrast the tech market today with the tech market then. Well, uh, that's a really good question. I would say the reason I was suffering was because I was uh, skeptical of the new era that we were supposedly in. And what's different is that some of the crazy market caps are more are more realistic as businesses or, or are actually businesses as opposed to just concepts. So you don't have as many com- companies that are, that are simply business plans masquerading as multi-hundred million dollar companies. On the other hand, we have these big guys that have massive market caps. And because of the nature of manias where crazy things happen that you could never predict, now you've got this handful of companies that have created this you know, excess of a you know, trillion dollars so far this year simply by the virtue of the fact that they're in tech and they're big and they're going up. So it feeds on itself. And my experience with manias, both you know the last two that we've had here and even in Japan in the late 80s, is when things start to get crazy, they get crazy, crazier, crazier, crazier ad infinitum until they finally exhaust themselves. So again, nearly every day or week goes by, something seemingly more uh, wild happens. And the fact that you can make a long list of these things regretfully doesn't tell us how close we are to the end. But I think they do say that it's kind of late innings, as imprecise as that may sound. We're starting to get to what I like to call the mania chronicle stuff, where it's just so absurd that you know when it gets looked at in the cold light of day, a year or two hence, people will actually realize how stupid it was, even though it passes for, you know, sanity now, i.e. the um, quote about doomsday preppers getting long uh, Bitcoin, for instance. There's another one. Uh, there's a Gallup survey out that says uh, that the public is the least concerned about economic issues as matters of public policy, least concerned since the year 1999. And um, the paired part of that, the bookend to that, is that according to the latest Bank of America Merrill Lynch Global Fund Manager Survey, uh, Goldilocks economic expectations, that is high growth, low inflation, are at an all-time high of 56% of respondents. Yes, well, I think that fits. If you think about a survey canvassing a wide array of people, then I think you're going to get sort of the crowd psychology. And I think crowd psychology almost certainly always, to speak a little bit algorithmically, weights the most recent past with the highest weighting. Thus, the fact that the last eight or nine years have been more or less, uh, not straight up, but have certainly been up in the markets, both fixed income and equities, coupled with the fact that there haven't been any real economic accidents, people have forgotten about it. You know, the last few years are the clearest and have the most impact on muscle memory. And it's all been, and really the same was true at the end of all the other crazes. I mean, let's not forget that Ben Bernanke was so clueless that he said subprime was contained before it had even begun to metastasize. And he was supposedly an expert on that subject. So if the public wasn't saying this, if we didn't have all of these signs, then I would have to argue to you that, boy, we're still pretty early in this process. And finally, uh, or semi-finally, I guess, uh, under the heading of uh, volatility. Now, when Donald Trump came in, I I had a very clever phrase that I wish that I'd saved for a little bit later. And uh, what I said of D. Trump, president of the United States, was that he is the avatar of tail risk. All right. So um, uh, that was, of course, in the service of the idea that volatility was going to be increasing as uh, as Mr. Trump did his thing, unpredictable and Twitter addicted as he was. All right. So here are the results. The VIX index, which, of course, measures equity motion, volatility, and the move index, which does the same for the bond market, are near their respective all-time 
all-time lows, not highs, lows. So how do we square low volatility with a world that seems in so many ways to be so fraught with risk? Well, I would say that the observation you made could still be true, even if it hasn't manifested itself just yet. And then you would say, well, well, yes, but why hasn't it? And I would argue the following. We admitted early on that we did not know what exactly QE would do and how long it would last. We assumed it would take asset price up. world's never seen this level of, mo- of money printing here in the United States or globally. And while we are in the process of the early days of QT, the rest of the world still is doing some QE, which is another way of saying we still have a lot of free money out there. And we don't, again, we don't have any way to gauge the timeline on, on how that works. So I would say you have the potent elixir of free money combined with optimism, which Trump brought in, not because he was Donald Trump, but because he wasn't Obama. And forgetting the political baggage that each one has, I don't think it very. I don't think it's arguable that Obama wasn't a friend of business and had businessmen sort of downbeat. Trump came in and said all the things he said, and the market was going up and all that, and so people tended to believe it. So you had the most powerful force of all, that being psychology and animal spirits, saying, "Yeah, this is going to work for us." While they still have enough QE to make one last sprint higher. The danger for the markets is that all this has been tacked on at the moment in time where the tide's about to go out as we start to go to QT here. And but again, we don't know the, the timing of when that exactly will matter. So I, I'm, I'm not so surprised, even though I couldn't possibly have predicted it, that the market has done what it done. But I don't think it invalidates your premise that Donald Trump embodies tail risk itself, because he will help precipitate that once the market mood changes. But this also goes to show you that these manias, I think, have to run till they exhaust themselves, because it's very difficult to change the psychology as long as people are still, um, you know, we haven't found the marginal seller or run out of the marginal buyer just yet. Well, this segment of the Grants Podcast has been brought to you by eFinancial Careers, which is the world's leading financial services career website. So discover career-changing opportunities across the industry from leading brands to niche firms. Why not take the hard work out of job hunting? Register today to let recruiters find you. You can create a profile, save jobs, and create alerts, and upload your resume and cover letter to uh, apply for jobs on the fly. So check out the website at eFinancialCareers.com. The two of us have been through a number of extreme moments in the market, both to the upside and to the downside. Certainly uh, December 2008 through the first four or five months or so of 2009, in retrospect, and perhaps a time a little bit prospectively, was a time of, of uh, kind of inverse mania, uh, inverse mania, and of, uh, of great opportunity. How does the present moment strike you in comparison with the times through which we both live? Well, I think this is far crazier in that the fact that the central bank sponsored this, I think, changes how you're supposed to think about the, the aftermath. And what I mean by that is, in the stock bubble here, I erroneously assumed that you know after it cracked up, people would look at what happened and learn their lesson and move on. And of course, the Fed turned around and did the same thing. We had a real estate bubble to bail out the stock bubble, and then we had a bigger bust. And now they've come to rely on you know the portfolio balance channel, otherwise known as trickle-down economics, whereby the, the financial markets ceased to become a reflection of the economy, and the financial markets are meant to be the engine that pulls the economy along by these guys reckoning, which means you can't look at when this busts and say, okay, 
it's going to be all, all kinds of problems like you could have envisioned after the last two because you know they're going to, or at least I assume, that they will ride to the rescue to try to, you know, save the day. So you can't, you can't plan for the backside in the same way that you could then. You're not going to be able to make a decision about what you really want to do next till they come in and do their QE and we see how markets believe them. You and I have been around long enough and certainly read enough history and you've written about history to know that markets don't have to believe these guys and one of these days they won't. Well, will it be in the first part of the uh, of the next QE process? I don't know. I certainly hope so. But this is far, far crazier because, I mean, my God, you have, just look at the example you just gave. We got a junk bond company in France at negative rates, not, not and Low despite the negative grade, rates. Yeah. Pardon me? Low investment grade, please. Although we Sorry. do have a, a European, the Euro denominated junk bond index that Evan has reminded me of right now to yield 2.48%. So I, I, I think this is a, a much, much bigger mania. It doesn't have the obvious epicenter that the stock bubble did with people day trading and all of that or people flipping houses. We got bits and pieces of all those things and then we've got government bonds, governments that are basically broke where their bond yields are absurd. I mean, nothing is crazy, I don't think, than Japan with their size of debt to GDP uh, yielding three beeps, you know? So, 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 Bill, so one of the things you've done so well in this cycle is, is to not sell it short. You have retired from the fine art of short selling. When did you, did you retire from that? I business? closed my fund down in the first quarter of 2009 because I knew that QE was going to make it difficult to be yeah. a short seller. Now, what are you doing to uh, between the hours of was it 9:30 a.m. and 4 p.m. Eastern Time these days? How are you allocating funds, and uh, or are you just kind of going fishing and waiting for things to get more in the kind of alignment that you can play? Well, I, I you know I, I do a lot of twiddling my thumbs. I, as you, believe that precious metals are the reciprocal of confidence in central banking, and since you can tell what my view is, which is the same as yours, I can't resist the opportunity to be long gold, even though it doesn't seem to be working all that well for the moment, though it's up over 10% on the year, which is not nothing. In particular, I think the mining stocks are, are particularly cheap. They've got almost all, all of the good ones have insider buying, uh, but you can't give them away. I own them because I, I feel like I'm, I'm invested with City Hall. I'm not fighting City Hall, though I'm expressing the fact that I think City Hall is doing nothing but making bad decisions. I expect we will have a... I believe, if I said to you, the market's going to break 10% in early January, and it's going to end of this leg, and the Fed's going to come in. I will make far more money being long metals and miners in that environment, I believe, than I would be being short, because I can't be short. I know they're going to come and ride to the rescue. So the first leg down is just a trade. Now, it could be a big, violent trade, as uh, Frank Brosnan described your conference, the, lo- the level of rocket fuel to the downside resembles uh, October of 87, you know, the summer and spring and fall of 87. So there's a non-trivial possibility that the first break is horrendous by the time the Fed can circle the wagons we're down 20% or some number. But I, but I believe the better opportunity is going to be in the metals as people realize these policies don't work. Then the time to think about short selling will be when we see how the markets collectively react to the almost certain rescue attempt on the part of the central yeah. banks. Okay. So well, um, um, that's how I'm doing it. Well, thank you for doing this, for being with us today. It's been merely terrific and so glad I met you in the year, was it 18 something or other? Long time ago. Yes, and the pleasure has been all mine for sure. Thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you, listeners. Till next time, for Grant's Interest Rate Observer, I am Jim Grant.